You're listening to Semper Reform on the Radio, where the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is applied to all of life. There are many people who do not want to hear the truth because it will shake up the false hope they have that they're going into heaven when indeed they are not. Christ is our King. Scripture is our law. Scripture and the laws of our country now collide head on. Now, just to make it clear, we don't bow down to Caesar. So what does Paul do when he gets his big shot at the Areopagus? Watch him. Now, not only has Paul not compromised in order to get here, but once he's here, he says, your worldview is wrong, your philosophy is wrong, it's not just wrong, it's an affront to God, you ought to know better, you're in sin. But the good news is, God has extended to you an opportunity to repent. All right, well, thank you for joining us uh, again today. My name is Tim Shaughnessy, and you are listening to Semper Reform on the radio. Uh, I am here today in the studio by myself because uh, we weren't able to meet this past week. But uh, today what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and play a Trinity Foundation lecture given by John Robbins on N.T. Wright. And uh, if you remember from our last episodes when we critiqued Tim Keller, one of the criticisms that I had about Tim Keller was that he quotes N.T. Wright liberally in one of his books. And uh, I know that a lot of teachers out there uh, like to quote people like uh, G.K. Chesterton or N.T. Wright. But there's a lot that you got to know about N.T. Wright. And um, so... This uh, this lecture given by Robbins is a I think a good profile of the theology of N.T. Wright. Now before uh, we play that, let me just remind everybody that we are part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. There are a number of other podcasts out there to check out. You've got uh, Conversations from the Porch, and uh, you they come out on Sunday. You've got Ladies Love Theology. They come out on Tuesday. And then, of course, you have the original Bible-thumping wingnut guys, Tim and Lynn. And uh, and then there's also uh, Slick Answers. Check that out. And um, so <clears throat> Carlos is, uh, is out right now. He's trying to work on some of his writing. And uh, Owen uh, was having internet problems. Owen Pawn is the other uh, co-host. He's a missionary in Bulgaria. And Carlos Montijo, he's the other ho- co-host. And uh, he is trying to work on some articles that he's uh, wanting to get out there. One of them is on Tim Keller. And uh, then he's, he's got a no- number of other articles that he's working on. But we all have uh, full-time jobs and families, young families. So uh, sometimes we, we aren't able to meet. But uh, hopefully we'll be back next week. So for this week, uh, enjoy this lecture. We want to thank Tom Geodatis from the Trinity Foundation for allowing us to play this and uh, we want to recommend the Trinity Foundation to people out there we think that they're an excellent uh, ministry 
and we've learned a lot from them. We've benefited from them, and so uh, we're grateful to them. So anyways, I hope everybody has a blessed week, and we'll check you guys next time. Let me begin uh, talking about N.T. Wright in earnest. You may or may not have heard his name, so I ought to explain why we're even bothering to talk about him. He is a very popular lecturer, a very popular writer. He has made an attempt to popularize his theology. He doesn't write simply for other academics, as E.P. Sanders does, or James Dunn does. He has written many books. I suppose there's now probably 30 books to his credit. And perhaps half, maybe more than half of those books are designed for wide audiences. He is not simply setting forth ideas for the consumption of his academic peers, but he's trying to influence the church at large directly. And he's not willing to wait for a generation until the seminary professors can do it for him. In Presbyterian churches, many of them have used his videotape series in their Sunday school classes, in their services. Many of them are promoting his books. And the men that we're going to be talking about on Friday night, God willing, the Auburn Avenue theologians, have latched on to N.T. Wright They see in him a kindred spirit, and they are doing their best to use his influence and his respectability with various audiences in order to promote their own ideas. A little chronological background perhaps might be necessary. I mentioned evangelicals and Catholics together last night, and also mentioned that that started in 1992. That is the most recent arm of this octopus that has emerged. The Norman Shepherd controversy at Westminster Seminary started in 1974, and that is arguably the oldest arm of the octopus. And the new perspective on Paul is usually traced, with some justification, to 1977, when Ed Sanders of Duke University published his major book on what he calls Second Temple Judaism. Paul and Palestinian Judaism was the title of the book. So you have two of these movements originating in the 1970s. Now this is 30 years ago, keep in mind. One of them was strictly academic, Ed Sanders. That started at Duke University. The other one started at Westminster Seminary. Again, an academic discussion. And the seminary, when the controversy began, tried, of course, to keep it contained within the walls of the seminary. But the third movement, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, was supposed to be public. It was supposed to whip up public support for all sorts of ecumenical activities between people who considered themselves Evangelicals and Roman Catholics. And what we see happening in churches today is many Presbyterian elders and pastors are promoting all three of these things. They're promoting some variety of what I call neo-legalism. And what I intend to do tonight is talk specifically about N.T. Wright and his theology. A little biography of Wright, uh, he was appointed Bishop of Durham 
He's an Anglican. He was appointed Bishop of Durham by Queen Elizabeth in her role as head of the Church of England a couple of years ago, acting through her Prime Minister, Tony Blair. Keep in mind that the Anglican Church is a state church, and all its priests and prelates are on welfare. So please keep that in mind. He holds, as Bishop of Durham, the fifth most prestigious office in the State Church of England, after the Queen herself, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Bishops of York and London. The Archbishop of Canterbury, a fellow named Rowan Williams, made headlines two or three years ago when he became a Druid. And perhaps some of you remember that. So this is a a rather dysfunctional family. I joke about it saying, you know, the head of the family is the queen, the elder brother is a druid, the priests and bishops are heterosexual and homosexual, and the whole family's on welfare. So it's rather a dysfunctional group. But it claims the title of the Church of England, which is ironic in itself, since England has a population of 60 million or so, and there are two million names on the books of the Church of England, and how many of those show up for services is another question. But certainly they're given to thinking highly of themselves. Wright has taught at Cambridge University. He's taught at Oxford University. He's taught at McGill University in Canada. He's been a visiting professor at Harvard Divinity School. And at the present time, he seems to satisfy the perennial neo-evangelical longing for validation by a British academic. C.S. Lewis once satisfied that longing. Apparently that British accent or the fact that you taught at Cambridge or Oxford has a great deal of attraction for some neo-evangelicals in the U.S. Like Lewis, he's a very popular author. He's a very good writer. And we mustn't confuse those talents, of course, with a sound theologian. Several tyrants in history have been great orators. And we mustn't confuse their ability to speak publicly with the soundness of their views or their policies. His principal contribution to New Testament scholarship, which is his declared field of expertise, and he's he's in the process of bringing out several fat volumes, and I mean fat. We're talking 800 to 1,000 pages each. And he has a projected list of six, I think, and he's done three, if I recall correctly. His contribution to New Testament scholarship is a profound misunderstanding and an imaginative misrepresentation of the message of the gospel and the theology of Paul in particular. I'll give you some quotes from a few men in Presbyterian circles who have praised N.T. Wright, just to make it clear that I'm not constructing a straw man here. Daniel Kirk, for example... He's a graduate of Westminster Seminary, and he's under care of the Eastern Carolina Presbytery and the PCA. says of the work of Dunn and Sanders and Wright that the Spirit is indeed shining forth new light from the Word of God. He sees in the work of these three men, E.P. Sanders and James Dunn and N.T. Wright, new light that the Spirit is shining forth from the Word of God. Robert Gundry, perhaps a more famous theologian, writing in Christianity Today, says, and this is a quote, 
In the past several years, New Testament scholar Tom Wright has stepped forward as the most scintillating champion of belief that the canonical Gospels, at least the first three of them, give us a reliable record of what Jesus of Nazareth actually said and did. And of course, you have to keep that phrase in mind, at least the first three of them. He calls N.T. Wright a modern-day St. George. And there are other quotes that I might and will provide as we go through this evening from these men. Alistair McGrath, maybe you've heard that name. He's another prolific English writer and lecturer. I forgot whether he's at Cambridge or Oxford. This is what he has to say about Wright's theology. He says he's lobbed a hand grenade into the world of traditional evangelical theology. If Wright is correct, Martin Luther is wrong. Very accurate. If Wright is correct, Martin Luther is wrong. And not only Martin Luther, McGrath goes on and he says it's important to appreciate at this point that it's not merely evangelical interpretations of the phrase works of the law that are called into question by Wright. Having studied the development of the Western interpretation of Paul on justification over a period of 1,800 years, I have to report that until recently, virtually every writer within that tradition of interpretation treated the notion of the works of the law in this manner, irrespective of whether the interpreter is Protestant or Catholic, evangelical or not. It is for this reason that the general line of interpretation developed by Sanders, which is echoed in Wright, is of such significance. Wright is overturning, according to McGrath, the entire Western understanding of what the works of the law means. Another Scottish theologian, Donald MacLeod, not much of a conservative, he says the modern New Testament scholar N.T. Wright offers yet another variant on the theme of justification by experience. According to Wright, justification means God's declaration that we're members of the covenant community. He accepts that in making this declaration, God's only requirement is faith, but rejects the old Protestant view that the value of faith lies in the fact that it unites us to Christ, and this makes us partakers of his righteousness. Instead, according to Wright, God takes faith as a sign that the Spirit is already at work in us, and that we are already members of the covenant people. It demonstrates that we have a new penitent heart, and God's seen grace already at work justifies us. For those of you who might be somewhat familiar with Roman soteriology, this is similar to Roman soteriology. But it's even worse in one sense, because justification in N.T. Wright's theology is what you might call a horizontal relationship. It's not God declaring you righteous on the basis of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. It's God declaring you a member of his covenant community. And righteousness has nothing to do with it. Not righteousness as conceived in classical Protestant orthodoxy anyway. N.T. Wright doesn't believe in the doctrine of imputation. He thinks it's a cold piece of business, to use the phrase that I quoted last night. He simply doesn't believe in it. And because he doesn't believe in it and explicitly rejects it, Wright's errors appear throughout his theology. He wrote a little book about the Lord's Prayer, for example, and in it he writes, In a sense, therefore, the first words, that is, our Father, 
of the Lord's Prayer represent the goal towards which we are working rather than the starting point from which we set out. Let me repeat that sentence again. The first words, that is, our Father of the Lord's Prayer, represent the goal towards which we are working rather than the starting point from which we set out. Wright simply does not grasp and therefore doesn't believe the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's foolishness to him, just as Paul said it would be. It's foolishness to him. He continues with his discussion of the Lord's Prayer. He says, because we are not 100% converted Christians, we don't yet have the right to pray this prayer. That is the Lord's Prayer. But we can actually say these words as though we really meant them. Now, there's a whole philosophical background behind this sort of thinking. We have it reduced to a slogan in English, practice makes perfect. And if you go through the motions, eventually you'll arrive at some goal. This is what C.S. Lewis advocates in his books. You may not believe it, but you go through the motions. So you attend Mass every week, even though you may not believe anything in particular about Christ or the Mass. And if you go through the motions often enough, perhaps you'll start to believe it. Well, N.T. Wright has us working toward the goal of being able to call God our Father eventually. Now, of course, this is a complete misunderstanding of the doctrine of justification, and not only that, but the doctrine of adoption. These things in the biblical sense do not appear in the theology of N.T. Wright. When he does discuss them, he denies them but they form no part of his own theology. And this is the man that is being widely promoted by Presbyterian pastors and elders as bringing forth new truth from God's word. Part of the reason that so many have been seduced by N.T. Wright is Wright has completely redefined biblical terms. He still uses biblical terms. He even calls himself a Calvinist. He says he believes in sola scriptura. He says he believes in sola fide. He says he believes in justification. But then you go on and read him where he describes what he means by these terms and it becomes apparent after enough study that he's running a shell game, as it were. Using the new definitions, it's possible for these theologians to utter the same sentence as Scripture or Calvin or Luther and means something completely different by it. That's very important to keep in mind. They can utter the same sentence as Scripture or Calvin or Luther or any of the other reformers. They can use language from the Westminster Confession and mean something completely different by it because they have redefined terms. Consider the term salvation, for example. Sanders at Duke University defines salvation and Wright agrees with him as, quote, Entry into the people of God. Entry into the people of God. See how horizontal this is? Salvation is entering a community, becoming part of a collective. Entering the people of God is salvation. Salvation is not reconciliation with God. It's not justification by God. It's not the forgiveness of sins, nor even cleansing from sin, nor even eternal life. Rather than being defined in terms of a sinner's changed relationship to a holy God because of the work of Christ, salvation is defined as a person's relationship to
to a collective. Salvation is horizontal first and vertical, if at all, only secondarily. It's not union through belief alone with the Christ who was born in Bethlehem, lived a sinless life and died a substitutionary death, but it's union with, that is, membership in the institutional church on earth. And I do not even use the phrase the visible church, because if you look at how the Westminster theologians define the phrase visible church, you'll see that it's all who profess the faith, the true faith, together with their children. And sometimes we misuse that to refer to various institutions as a visible church when they're simply synagogues of Satan. The characteristic of the visible church, according to the Westminster Assembly's definition, is all who profess the true faith together with their children. So if you have a denomination that does not profess the true faith, according to that definition, it's not part of the visible church. But it is an institutional church. And that's what N.T. Wright is talking about. It's becoming part, becoming a member of the institutional church that is salvation. And one does that by baptism. Through baptism, one becomes a member of the covenant community. One enters into the people of God and one is saved. In another book called The Millennium Myth, Wright attacks what he calls a modernist trinity. And this is very fascinating when he attacks something he calls modernist. When the neo-Orthodox movement began, it was a reaction to modernism or liberalism. And it took a while for some people to catch on to the fact that what was being promoted under the guise of orthodoxy was really a variant form of the very thing that they claimed to be opposing. And here he is attacking what he calls a modernist trinity, which consists of, one, the confident individual, and he has nothing but scorn for individuals and individualism, Certainty about the world and our objective knowledge of it is the second thing. And the third thing is a new mythology, the myth of progress. These are what he calls the modernist trinity. He refers to them also as the unholy threesome. And he tells us that one of the dogmas of modernism is you can't get an ought from an is. You can't get an ought from an is. And N.T. Wright maintains, of course, that you can get an ought from an is. Now, the philosopher who first made it very clear, I suppose, that you cannot get an ought from an is was David Hume, the Scottish philosopher of the 18th century. And it's, it's quite true. You cannot get an ought from an is. One of the elementary rules of logic is nothing can appear in the conclusion of an argument that doesn't first appear in the premises. And if there's no ought in the premises, there can be no ought in the conclusion. And by one fell swoop, Hume destroyed natural law. Theologians have been reeling ever since, trying to deal with Hume's very logical and very simple objection to the theory of natural law. N.T. Wright, of course, rejects this idea. He thinks you can get an ought from an is. But he also thinks that logic is too Western or too Enlightenment or too non-Jewish or too Greek or something. He should read 1 Corinthians 15, where you see Paul arguing in what is called a sorites, a series of syllogisms, in which the conclusion of the first syllogism becomes the premise of the next. 
And there Paul has an extended argument. One can also, or Wright should also, study the Gospels, where you see exquisite logical argumentation by Christ in dealing with his critics. But of course, he fundamentally dislikes logic. I suppose that's a cold piece of business, too. Well, in his Doctrine of Justification, I'd like to read to you from an essay he wrote called Paul's Gospel and Caesar's Empire. Paul's Gospel and Caesar's Empire, in which he talks a little bit about justification. And he denies, and I'll try to find it before the hour is up, but he denies the word gospel ever means justification by faith alone. And he says, in fact, it doesn't have anything to do with soteriology. Not in the sense that soteriology is usually conceived. If you reconceive soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation, as he does, that is, as a horizontal thing, when you join the institutional church, you're saved, then you can say, yes, soteriology is a factor here. But otherwise, the word gospel simply does not refer to the doctrine of justification at all. Well, one need only read, for example, Romans 1.17, if you want to turn there. Now, N.T. Wright is no dummy. He's a brilliant man. But this is what Romans 1.17 says. For in it, that is, in the gospel, the gospel is referred to in verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Not only does the scripture contradict N.T. Wright, but it contradicts him very plainly in the first chapter of Romans. The word gospel is the revelation of a way of salvation. And that way of salvation is justification by faith alone. Precisely what Wright denies in his books. Well, he goes on and he says the gospel is a political message. It's a political message. And he says it's a political message at its heart. And I want to emphasize that. He denies explicitly that he means to say that the gospel has political implications. I think all of us would agree with that. The gospel has political implications or ramifications. In fact, there's a booklet on the back table called Christ and Civilization, in which I argue that what we call Western civilization emerged from the preaching of the reformers in the 1500s. And it's a fulfillment of the promise of Christ that if we seek first his righteousness and his kingdom, All these things that the Father knows we need will be added to us. But N.T. Wright says, no, that's not what he means. He doesn't mean that there are political implications of the gospel. He says the gospel at its heart, his words, is a political message at its heart. In his book, The Contemporary Quest for Jesus, Wright discloses some more of his political agenda. He says, what can be said about croissants? He's another theologian. Uh, Remarkable vision of Jesus and his work. Certainly not that it illegitimately turns Jesus' concern in a social direction. I am convinced that the social and material dimensions of Jesus' ministry must be brought to the fore as indeed they are in many contemporary writings. Now, this is just bizarre. 
the social and, how does he put it, the social and material dimensions of Jesus' ministry were brought to the fore more than 100 years ago in the social gospel movement. This is not a new idea, but right here is adamantly insisting that this is what the gospel is. It is a social gospel. It is a political message at its heart. Well, continuing, the socialist social gospel movement has been around for about 125 years. And more recently, the conservative social gospel movement called Reconstructionism has been around for about 30 years. And both of these movements bring what you might call the social dimensions of Jesus' ministry to the fore. So doctrine is unimportant. What's important is feeding the hungry and healing the sick. Doctrine is unimportant. Of course, Jesus, while he fed the hungry and healed the sick, nowhere said that doctrine is unimportant or of secondary importance. In fact, he said just the opposite. He said, if you so much as give a cup of cold water to someone, do it in my name. That makes the distinction between simply an act that the world considers charity and a Christian act if it's done in the name of Christ. Do it in my name. But the doctrine, of course, is far more important than the charitable works. And Christ did not come to teach us a new social gospel. Well, Wright continues with his political views, his political gospel, he says, what then is the challenge of God's future for the present? This is a very strange phraseology, God's future. What then is the challenge of God's future for the present? How do we rightly interpret and reappropriate the apocalyptic hope? The proper way of interpreting the great biblical hope is to see the present work of healing and liberation, the accomplishment of salvation at every level, as the bridge between what happened in Jesus 2,000 years ago and what will happen at the end. Deeds that truly embody justice, mercy, hope, and freedom in the present age are signposts pointing back to Jesus' resurrection, the ground of hope, and on to God's future, to the final presence of Jesus, the fulfillment of hope. How, after all, can we begin to describe the full significance of what we're doing when we plant a tree in a devastated landscape, dig a well in the desert, give hope and love to an abandoned child, or campaign for an end to war? Only poetry, art, and music can begin to do justice to such things. Now, if you're thinking at this point, what has this got to do with the gospel, I agree with you. Wright doesn't discuss his views, his political views, at great length in his books. But when he does mention them, they're uniformly socialist. Take these remarks from his little book about the Lord's Prayer. He's discussing the petition, give us this day our daily bread. And he says, obviously, we can become more politically sensitive and active to support programs not just for foreign aid, but for a juster and fairer global economy, unquote. Later in the same book, Wright writes, quote, As we pray this prayer, forgive us our debts for the world. Let us be alert to new visions of what the living God wants us to aim at in our society. 
Could it be that we could work and pray for a jubilee, for the cancellation of the debt, which is crippling half the world and keeping the other half in clover? He wrote a book endorsing the Vatican's plan to cancel international debt in the year 2000. The Vatican had a great plan to do that. And to some extent it was fulfilled. Shortly after the Pope announced it, our President Clinton decided that he was going to cancel some of the international debt. And this is what N.T. Wright is arguing for here when he talks about Jubilee. He appeals to Isaiah chapter 61 as, as somehow part of this whole proposal. And it's very clear when you read uh, what he says about politics and economics, he knows nothing about either one. And he might try studying the works of a much more informed and wise Englishman on this point, Peter Bauer. Peter Bauer's books on foreign aid and the international economy shows that Wright's views are as foolish, his political views are as foolish as his theological views. He also attacks the Industrial Revolution. It's so absurd, but in a sense it's what you would expect of a man getting a government check every month and not doing any work for it. He says, Those whom the Enlightenment enabled to think of themselves as masters of their fate and captains of their souls were, of course, standing on the shoulders of millions of workers for whom the main effect of swapping agricultural serfdom for industrial wage slavery was the loss of fresh air. Now, this is just absurd. For a man of his intelligence and his position to stand up and talk like this is obscene. To pursue the political point, as European society has leveled out in the last 200 years, it has increasingly achieved its new state of freedom at the expense of the rest of the world. This overarching story has now been conclusively shown to be oppressive, imperialist, and self-serving. It has brought untold misery to millions in the industrialized West and to billions in the rest of the world where cheap labor and raw materials have been ruthlessly exploited. Everybody's liberation turns out to be someone else's slavery. Everybody's economic boom turns out to be at someone else's expense. Well, if you're familiar with the history of politics and economics, you'll understand that the greatest expositor of this sort of thinking was Karl Marx. And N.T. Wright is simply echoing Marx, even down to some of the phraseology. Exploitation, wage slavery, imperialism. This is Marxism-Leninism in ecclesiastical vestments. It's spoken like a true medievalist and a true Marxist. Except, of course, that Marx, if you read the Communist Manifesto, had a better appreciation for capitalism than Tom Wright does. Peter Bauer, the English economist I referred to a minute ago, had a slogan, Ecclesiastical economics is envy exalted. Ecclesiastical economics is envy exalted. And that's exactly what the spirit of this is. It reeks of envy. And that's what Tom Wright is promoting in his political gospel. See, we've left Christian theology way behind. The gospel is a political message at its heart. And that political message says we have to have a better distribution of the wealth worldwide. 
We have to cancel uh, debts. And we have to fight against the industrial system where wage slavery takes away everybody's fresh air. This is the new gospel. Peter Bauer wrote about Pope Paul VI encyclicals. And this is what he said about the statements that Pope Paul VI back in the 60s made about economics. He said, they are documents which are immoral on several levels. To begin with, they are incompetent. And they are immoral because they're incompetent. That's a very profound comment. That's a very profound comment. They're immoral because they're incompetent. The documents are also immoral in that they give color to the notion that envy can be legitimate. And they spread confusion about the meaning of charity. The same thing can be said about the political views of N.T. Wright. And one would expect, I suppose, no less from a bishop in a state church to attack capitalism, to attack the Industrial Revolution, to tout envy, and to say that we have to redistribute the wealth because we aren't doing enough in that regard. Well, to return to something that perhaps has something to do with Christianity, the Jesus that Wright offers us in his books is a parody, a caricature of Jesus described in Scripture. Take, for example, his comments on the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Wright asserts that this prayer is, quote, his own breath, his own life, his own prayer. The prayer is actually a distillation of his own sense of vocation, unquote. Later in the book, he tells us that, quote, the Lord's prayer is the prayer which summed up his life and work, unquote. End quote. The Lord's Prayer grows directly out of the life and work of the Lord himself. Unquote. But this prayer is not Jesus' prayer. It was the prayer that he gave his disciples to pray. Jesus does not say with them, Our Father, for his relationship to the Father is quite different from his disciples' relationship to the Father. He is the unique Son, the only begotten Son, They are adopted sons. Whenever he speaks to or of the father and uses a possessive adjective, it is always singular. My father. Further, Jesus does not pray for the forgiveness of sins. As he instructs his disciples to do. He is the sinless son. This should be too obvious to need mentioning. But right has a gift for missing the obvious in his eccentric search for the profound. These considerations make it clear that this prayer is not Jesus' prayer, though he may indeed have prayed certain of its petitions. But in asserting that it is Jesus' own prayer, Wright implies that Jesus is a sinner who must ask forgiveness of his sins, and he destroys Christ's unique sonship. What does Wright think about Scripture? Wright makes it clear that he is not a fundamentalist. He says, we are not fundamentalists. I don't know whether that's an editorial we or an imperial we or a we of majesty or what it is, but we are not fundamentalists. Discussing the census that the impeccable historian Luke mentions in chapter 2, verse 2, Wright says, Quirinius, as we know from elsewhere, and this bears on a question you brought up the other day, Dr. Battles, Quirinius, as we know from elsewhere, didn't become governor until about A.D. 6, getting on 10 years after the most likely date for Jesus' birth. 
The moral to be drawn from the discrepancy between Luke 2.2 and what we know from elsewhere is that Luke doesn't know what he is talking about. But is it really that simple, Wright asks. A cautionary note before we address the topic itself. There's nothing to be gained from an attempt to make the truth of Christianity depend on the literal truth of every word of the Bible. For Christians, Jesus, not the New Testament, is the central truth. Now, this goes back to what we were talking about during the first hour. This goes back to what is discussed in God's Hammer and the other books back there, particularly what is saving faith, this notion that the truth is Jesus, but not the Scripture. And he says, Jesus, not the New Testament, is the central truth. One of the appropriate questions to ask Bishop Wright is, how do you know anything about Jesus? At another point in the same book, Wright says, They, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are inescapably theological history. This doesn't mean, of course, that they put everything in chronological order or reported everything Jesus or anyone else said in exactly the words that he used. No historian ever does that. He asserts his agreement with John Selby Spong, who has made some notoriety in the past few years. He takes issue with Spong's contention that the Gospels are madrash, And Wright says, however, Hebrews is. He says some of the letter to the Hebrews could quite properly be considered, but the Gospels are not. At least Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not. In his discussion of the virgin birth, or as he calls it, the virginal conception of Christ, he says that the axiomatic assertion that the Bible is true is begging the question. We talked about axioms and first principles Monday night, and I set forth the teaching of Scripture and the Westminster summary of it as that the Bible is the axiom of Christianity. And he says this is begging the question. He quotes E.P. Sanders' ridicule, and he quotes it approvingly, of the theological discussion about the virgin birth and the resurrection And he says, the larger question of Scripture itself is an important one, but we can't go into it here. And anyway, this, once more, isn't the point. It is precisely because the Bible contained things like the virginal conception of Jesus that some people, including some devout Christians, have come to feel that the Bible cannot, in fact, be as true as they had thought. One cannot, therefore, simply appeal to the truth of the Bible and hope that this will settle the issue. It just begs the question. Fundamentalists who are more interested in the inerrancy of Scripture and the likelihood of miracles will always miss the point. He denies the inerrancy of Scripture. This is the man who is being promoted heavily in Presbyterian and Reformed churches as the great bringer of new truth from the Word of God. Of course, under the guidance of the Spirit, A blasphemy. Discussing Mark, Bishop Wright writes, Since Mark's gospel is quite possibly truncated at both ends, it's impossible to tell what might have been there if we had the whole book. So both ends are cut off of Mark's gospel. His low view of scripture is reflected again in what he says about the Lord's Prayer. Listen to this statement. He says, If we value and marvel at the fact that Christian worship has been offered in our cathedral for nearly 1,300 years, and it is indeed a wonderful thing, 
How much more ought we to cherish and marvel at the fact for nearly 2,000 years people have prayed this prayer, that is the Lord's Prayer. When you take these words on your lips, you stand on hallowed ground. What Wright values and cherishes and marvels at is that people have prayed this prayer for 2,000 years. And it's that tradition that makes the prayer hallowed ground. Not the fact that Jesus taught it. Not the fact that it's found in Scripture. But the fact that for 2,000 years people have repeated it. And that makes it hallowed ground. That shows how he orders scripture and tradition. It's tradition that hallows things. It's tradition that makes things marvelous. It's not the words of the Savior. Well, continuing on with some more ideas of N.T. Wright, he believes, quote, symbols are the most powerful way to declare anything, unquote. Symbols are the most powerful way to declare anything. Unfortunately, he continues to write books filled with propositions. One gets tired of alleged scholars lecturing the rest of us on the power of symbols and myths and pictures and the inadequacy of literal words and propositions. One wishes that they would produce works consistent with their doctrine. Cartoon books filled with symbols and pictures and devoid of propositions. It would make the work of rebutting them much easier. For symbols are the least powerful way to declare anything. That is why God has given us a book, not a cartoon book, but a book filled with propositions for us to understand, believe, and obey. Right is a mystic. Prayer, he says, is, of course, and notice the of course, a mystery. I haven't had time to comment on the word mystery, but theologians have used the word mystery in a non-biblical sense for centuries. In the Bible, mystery simply means a secret. There are many passages that use the word mystery, and in every one of them it is a secret. It's a secret that God knows and either reveals or keeps to himself. And when he reveals it, He reveals it for our understanding and knowledge. A mystery is not something spooky. It's not something unintelligible. It's not something irrational or paradoxical. Paul refers to one mystery. He says, uh, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. He calls that a mystery. That's quite easily understood. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed at the coming of Christ. But theologians use the word mystery as something irrational, as paradoxical, as something unintelligible that cannot be understood. They use it consistently in that fashion. Very rarely do you find a theologian who uses the word mystery in the biblical sense. Wright says prayer is a mystery. He says that what we need is a hierarchy of prayers, Prayers, not prayers, but prayers. With lay folk at the bottom, clergy next, monks and nuns above them, and mystics at the top of the pyramid. He speaks of those, quote, who have made the long journey into really serious prayer and who return to tell the rest of us that, quote, it remains a great mystery. These people, he writes, like Moses, disappear into the cloud of unknowing. 
The Cloud of Unknowing is, of course, one of the most famous works in mysticism. And while unknowing that is ignorant may describe the state of mind of the mystics, it does not describe the state of mind of Moses. God himself testifies that far from being unknowing, Moses knew God, and God knew Moses better than anyone else. And I quote, this is a quote from Exodus 33, verses 9 and 11. It came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Unquote. Now, there was a cloud, and it kept the Israelites ignorant of what was going on, separating them from Moses and God. But God spoke to Moses in rational, intelligible words and propositions, as a man speaks to his friend, as the scripture says. Moses, in turn, spoke all of God's propositions and commands to the Israelites so that they did not remain ignorant. God is not a God of ignorance, of unknowing but a God of knowledge and truth. In this book, he doesn't advise that people empty their minds and use one-word mantras as the cloud of unknowing advises people to do, but he comes close. This is what he says. He says, repeat it, that is the Lord's Prayer, slowly, again and again, in the rhythm of your breathing, so that it becomes, as we say, second nature. Now, not only does this violate Christ's commands not to use repetitive prayers, but it emphasizes his anti-intellectual approach to prayer, period. Throughout the book, he uses the phrase, breathe in, to express his basically mystical approach to prayer. In another book, he refers to the deep hidden stream of Christian meditation, mysticism, adoration, thanksgiving, wrestling with the anguish of the world in the presence of God. It says all of this is waiting to be rediscovered and explored. When that happens, a key part of the symbolic universe will be put into place, unquote. This whole idea of breath prayers is a technique that mystics have advised people to use for centuries. And N.T. Wright advises this. Use the Lord's Prayer itself as a breath prayer. One looks in vain in his books for a favorable reference to the West, Western civilization. I don't mean Western United States, Western civilization. There may be one, but this writer missed it. In discussing the kingdom of God, N.T. Wright says, 20th century Western Christians need to shed a few ideas at this point. When people downed tools, put down their tools for a while, and trudged off up a hillside to hear Jesus talking, we can be sure they weren't going to hear someone tell them to be nice to each other, or that if they behaved themselves or got their mind round the right theological scheme, there would be a rosy future awaiting them when they got to heaven, and he puts that in quotes or that God had decided at last to do something about forgiving them of their sins. There is no sign, he says, that first century Jews were walking around gloomily, wondering how their sins were ever going to be forgiven. They had the temple and the sacrificial system, which took care of all that. If Jesus had only said what a lot of Western Christians seem to think he said, he would have been just a big yawn maker. Unquote. 
Not only does this passage illustrate Wright's anti-Westernism, it also indicates his contempt for theological concepts such as heaven and the forgiveness of sins. There is, in fact, plenty of evidence in the New Testament that some, a remnant to be sure, but some Jews of the first century were wondering how their sins were going to be forgiven, for they understood that, quote, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins, and that, quote, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. They looked for a savior who was to come to die for their sins. That is why the angel told Joseph that, quote, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Zacharias prophesies, for you, that is John the Baptist, will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. And N.T. Wright misses all this. He says the first century Jews were not worried about their sins because their sins were all taken care of at the temple in the sacrificial system. Perhaps he thinks that the writers of the gospel did not record the words of Zacharias and the angel properly, as he said elsewhere. Wright himself has no such concern about what the Bible says because he reads the Bible with his political glasses on. He leaves no doubt in our mind about his own thinking, though he tells us nothing about what first century Jews actually thought. Wright finds the concern for heaven and forgiveness of sins boring. He said Jesus, if he was talking about that, would have been a big yawn maker. This is boring. What he finds exciting is politics. And he thinks, as all arrogant academics think, that we ought to be excited about what he finds exciting and bored by what he finds boring. The fact that Wright finds the forgiveness of sins boring and politics exciting shows merely that there's something radically wrong with Wright. Undoubtedly, Wright regards the forgiveness of sins as boring because he regards the sins of individuals as petty. His word, petty. What is important in Wright's rewriting of theology is what he calls the great national rebellion. Jesus' first aim was to summon Israel to repent, and he puts repent in quotes, not so much of petty individual sins, but of the great national rebellion against the Creator, against the covenant God. It was this political rebellion, Israel's bent on violent revolution, against the Romans that was Jesus' first aim, he says. Individual sins are petty. What Jesus was concerned about was the political situation, not individual sins. In another book, Wright discusses forgiveness of sins with these words, or if people do still think about forgiveness, they seldom get beyond the small-scale private forgiveness of small-scale private sins. See, he doesn't take sin seriously. In his theology, sin is not a serious matter. Wright consistently minimizes the seriousness of personal sin while harping on the importance of politics. This in turn flows from his rejection of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. 
It's not by accident that the Apostle Paul takes up the fact of personal sin, total depravity, immediately after the enunciation of the gospel of justification by faith alone in Romans 1.17. Some commentators look at that passage and they think Paul has suddenly switched gears. In Romans 1.17, he's talking about justification by faith alone. Romans 1.18, he starts talking about depravity. But the doctrine of justification by faith alone logically implies that there is no good, no, not one. Paul's argument is systematic. He's drawing out implications from the doctrine of justification. If people are justified by faith alone, it follows rigorously that there is no one good, no, not one. Wright, however, rejects the notion that the petition in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is about avoiding personal sin. He writes, It would be absurd to suppose that Jesus was telling his followers to say their prayers in case they might be tempted to commit some trivial personal sin. Personal sins are petty, they're trivial, and it's absurd to suppose that Jesus is instructing them to pray this prayer so that they could avoid sin. Wright says that when Jesus allegedly prayed this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, He, that is Jesus, was not delivered from evil. And I guess at this point, Wright forgot the resurrection. The political theme appears in the book, The Lord and His Prayer. And Wright writes, so Jesus' kingdom message, after all, was simply about national and political liberation. At this point, Western Christianity, which is his great bete noir, Western Christianity, has tended to say, of course not. Jesus wasn't into politics. He came with a spiritual message, the timeless and eternal truths of personal salvation. And then he says, that clearly won't do. How many times does a man have to say that he's rejecting Christianity? All the while, he's using the terminology of Scripture. Here's his argument at this point. He says, We'd have to cut out the telltale phrase from the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven. So that is why, according to Wright, Jesus' kingdom message is not about the timeless and eternal truths of personal salvation. This, of course, is false, and it's not only false, it's simply stupid. The coming of Christ's kingdom on earth is the salvation of persons on earth. Their salvation is the coming of the kingdom. The kingdom is not ushered in by political means. It's not ushered in by the growth of the Church of England. It's not ushered in by the queen appointing this man Bishop of Durham. The coming of the kingdom is the salvation of individual souls on earth. The kingdom comes and God's will is done in no other way. And when the last elect person is born and believes the gospel of justification by faith alone, then the end will come and Christ's kingdom will be revealed in all its power and glory. Wright, as you might expect, rejects the doctrine of hell. He's very much what I call an eminentist. He's a preterist. Everything in Matthew 24 refers to events that occurred in or around A.D. 70. He begins his discussion of hell by, quote, The desire to see others punished has no place in a Christian scheme of things, unquote. Apparently he's forgotten several things in Scripture in making that statement. 
Second, most of the passages in the New Testament which have been thought by the church to refer to people going into eternal punishment after they die don't in fact refer to any such thing. The great majority of them have to do with the way God acts within the world and history. That's what eminentism is. Everything is concerned with this world and history. He says the great majority of them. Unfortunately, he fails to give even one example of a passage that does refer to eternal punishment. He's very deceptive in that. He'll say the great majority or most of them and then doesn't give a single one that shows that Scripture supports the doctrine of eternal punishment. He says, as a historian, I can say categorically that Jesus' language about the awful punishment in store for those who reject his message must be read as predictions of the awful future that awaited the nation of Israel. Can I read that one again? I can say categorically, categorically, that Jesus' language about the awful punishment in store for those who rejected his message must be read as predictions of the awful future that awaited the nation of Israel. And that awful future came to pass in AD 70 when General Titus leveled the city. A page later he writes, horrific judgment, this worldly judgment, the devastation of cities and the tearing apart of nations will follow the decision to go on worshiping other gods. For us the warning should be equally clear. He doesn't believe in hell because he doesn't believe that men are or have immortal souls. Only those who will survive death are those who I guess are members of the Church of England or members of the covenant community, whatever he means by that. Everybody else, when they die, they simply die. It's all over with. There is no immortality. It's conditional. And he uses the word and the phrase conditionalism to express his views. Of course, this is nothing new either. This is an old heresy as well. When he talks about heaven, heaven is as imminent as anything else. Heaven is this worldly. Heaven is, quote, a further dimension of our world, not a place far removed at one extreme. It is all around us, glimpsed in a mystery in every Eucharist. Heaven is glimpsed in a mystery in every Eucharist. It's all around us. This view of heaven is very similar to what he had earlier in the same book described as a pagan view. I'll quote him. He says, as often as not the gods, that is the pagan gods and demons, would act through human agency. If Rome won a victory over Britain, that was because the goddess Roma was stronger than the goddess Britannia. The earthly battlefield and the heavenly battlefield were not separated by a great gulf. The heavenly was the hidden dimension of the earthly, the extra feature of ordinary reality that explained what was really going on. And he accurately describes this as the pagan view of the world. And in the same book, he says this is also his view of the world. One of the books we sell is War Against the Idols by the Yale historian, Roman Catholic historian. See how broad-minded I am? <laughs> Carlos Ayer, who talks about late medieval Catholicism. And he represents it accurately. He says this is precisely what late medieval Catholicism was like. It was pagan to the core. Its view of the world was that heaven is just another dimension. It shows up in the Eucharist. It shows up in the relics. It shows up in various ways. 
and it breaks through into our dimensions. A very superstitious view of the world. This is being revived in Presbyterian circles and in the institutional churches at large, and the phrases they use for this are incarnational reality. If that's the case, it denies the unique incarnation of Christ because they want to make all reality incarnational. But, of course, incarnation is a good Christian term. Wright doesn't believe in Satan. He doesn't believe in demons. He denies that they are real persons. What, may you ask, what was going on then in the temptation of Christ? Well, Christ was listening to voices in his head. Let me quote what he says. He says, he had to go out into the desert. This is a quote. From the whispering to face, the whispering and mocking and wheedling and beguiling voices inside his own head, which he came to recognize as the voice of the enemy. That's the temptation. He had to go out into the desert to face the whispering and mocking and wheedling and beguiling voices inside his own head. He denies that Satan is a person, and Christ simply heard voices. Well, I could continue, but I think you've probably got the point of what I'm trying to say, and that is not only is N.T. Wright wrong on justification, but he's wrong on virtually every doctrine he talks about. This man, again, you're probably tired of hearing me say this, is being promoted heavily by Presbyterian pastors to their congregations. His videotapes are being shown, and it is a tragedy. Perhaps tragedy isn't the right word. Perhaps crime is the right word. That this is going on, and the courts of Presbyterian churches take no action to stop it. Any comments or questions? Are there many PCA or OP or whatever uh, Presbyterian denominations that are many of the pastors that are actually swallowing it, or is just a scattered No, that it's it's widespread now. I don't know if you have access to the internet, but if you know somebody who does, you can go on the World Wide Web and see web pages put up by various PCA churches, various PCA pastors in which they're promoting not only their own writings and the writings of their friends, but also the writings of men like N.T. Wright. There is one church court in the PCA, the Mississippi Valley Presbytery, that has actually come out with a report about these movements and has condemned them. But all it has done, it hasn't asked the General Assembly of the PCA to take any action against these Presbyterian pastors that are teaching this. It simply says that if anybody applies or has a call to a church in our presbytery, he's going to face a tough examination. Well, that's not enough. This is a heresy that affects the church in large circles. The OPC has been confused about justification for decades. It took no action against, I'll talk tomorrow night, God willing, about Norman Shepherd. It took no action against his teaching 30 years ago. It has taken no action against the men in the OPC that continue to teach his doctrine at all, nothing at all. In fact, when an elder was tried and convicted by the local session of teaching justification by faith and works, his conviction was overturned by the General Assembly of the OPC. 
And this is a serious problem that affects these denominations. Some of the smaller denominations seem to be relatively free of it. Maybe the Bible Presbyterians and the Reformed Presbyterian Church in the U.S. seem to be relatively free of this. But the larger ones, like the OPC, the well-known ones, like the PCA, are riddled with this teaching. I was an elder in a PCA church. And, in fact, there were seven elders in that church. Three of us saw the problems, and three of us had to resign as elders because the pastor and the elders that supported him were defending this teaching, defending N.T. Wright. And when we resigned, I wrote a letter to the congregation explaining exactly why I had resigned as an elder. And the other two elders that resigned at the same time left the congregation as well. But there you have a case that is more typical than you might imagine, where churches are split and they never show up as a blip on any radar over this teaching. And you have even worse cases where churches aren't split and the people are accepting this as what the Bible teaches. It's a horrific situation. Any other comments or questions? Question. At the beginning of your presentation tonight, you said that they tend to use orthodox terminology. Yes. It's a game of sophistry, obviously. In these video series that are being presented, are they as blatantly obvious in contradiction to orthodox teaching? Oh, no. Oh, no. They're usually very slick. Very slick. It's not blatant at all in many cases. And what I've provided you tonight in these quotations from N.T. Wright show what his genuine meaning is. But when he's making a video or something of that sort, he'll try to be very, what should we say, circumspect and introduce these things subtly. And, of course, that fits in with the warning of Scripture, that these, these doctrines are brought in stealthily. Mm-hmm. And it's only after you take the time to plow through his books that you can find these statements. Most people don't do that. And they really shouldn't be expected to. The pastors who are out there who are supposed to be shepherds are not. They're allowing the sheep to be consumed by the wolves. In some cases, they're actually inviting the wolves into the pulpit. One other question, what might be the subject matter on these videos that one could look out for? I'm not sure. I don't know how to answer that question. It's, it's the whole approach that N.T. Wright has, that the, the message of Christ, while he had a message of salvation, and, and he will say that, you have to read his books again to find out what he means by salvation. And it, it's just very subtly done in that regard. The more popular books are the most subtle. As he gets into his academic works, it becomes more blatant what he's actually about. If Martin Luther was wrong in all the Protestant confessions, then there's very little obstacle to keep the Protestants from getting in bed with the Church of Rome. That's right. If Luther was wrong, then we owe the Pope an apology. Besides the fact that he's being paid probably outrageous sums of money, this man and right as well as probably from the Church of England and the various politicians that are out for an agenda. What would you say is besides that, I mean, did, did Wright, first of all, did Wright go to a seminary? Did he get a seminary degree? Did he study at any uh, theological venue? I, I'm sure he has. I don't recall what it was offhand. Maybe does anybody know where he studied? 
I know where he taught, but I don't recall where he studied. He taught at Cambridge and Oxford and McGill. What would, and then again, besides the depravity of man, what would possess a man to do to claim that he is he is following God, he is a Christian, and he believes in the inerrancy of the Bible, but yet, in his own words, even as you so aptly put tonight, he flat out denies what uh, uh, what the Bible stands for and what the Bible teaches. Well, that's a good question. I don't know about the psychology of a wolf, but that's what you're dealing with. What goes on in the mind of a wolf? What is his purpose here? He certainly wants to retain, on a very simple level, he certainly wants to retain his position of income and influence, and he certainly wants to advance in the bureaucracy of the Church of England, and he has done that. He's done that very well. But as far as advancing a new scheme of theology, which is what he's doing, he thinks that he has, I think he genuinely thinks that he has discovered what St. Paul really said. He wrote a book by that title, What St. Paul Really Said. And the upshot of the book is, nobody has understood St. Paul before I came along. And I have to write a book about what St. Paul really said. That was Alistair McGrath's point about his overturning the phrase, the works of the law, the meaning of that phrase as it has been understood for 1,800 years in the West. He simply rejects it. And in that sense, I think he's sincere. He really believes that he has, has these new insights that no one else has had before. And unfortunately, those insights change everything in Christian theology. This goes back to the, you know, the relative importance of the doctrine of justification. We saw the statements from Luther and Calvin last night that if you go wrong on this doctrine, everything else will go wrong, and we see that illustrated in N.T. Wright's theology. So basically he's just the next Joseph Smith? or uh... Well, I don't think he's about to bring out the Book of Mormon again or something like that, but he obviously does not accept the Bible as the word of God, because he rejects it as the axiom. He says we have to sit in judgment over Scripture and decide what belongs in Scripture and what doesn't belong. And he has some other standard by which he has to make some judgments. Obviously, if you're going to pick and choose which verses are there and which verses are appropriate, and which verses Paul did not write, you have to have some standard outside of Scripture to make your selection. He makes his selection based on the state of research at the present time. Now, the state of research is going to change in, well, next week. And so, you know, you're going to have to make a new choice next week. That's what happens when you rest your theology on the state of archaeology or academic research rather than on the Word of God. I have a question. A lot of the controversy that we're having is in the phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed in uh, the first chapter of Romans and, and throughout the book. Could you explain just briefly what N.T. Wright would say the righteousness of God is as opposed to the traditional Reformed understanding of that phrase? Oh, okay, the righteousness of God in, in N.T. Wright's theology, it means simply God's covenant faithfulness, and that's all it means. It means that he made certain promises and he is carrying through on those promises and that's what the phrase means and that's all it means. Now in historic Protestantism, 
It's meant that, but it's also meant something else. In Romans, Paul says that this scheme of salvation, to use N.T. Wright's derogatory phrase, makes God both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The first half, making God just, you might say, is somewhat similar to what Wright thinks. It's preserving the righteousness of God in his covenant faithfulness. But what Wright denies is the second part of that that God imputes the righteousness of Christ to believing sinners and declares them just. So in historic Protestantism, there's a broader meaning to the phrase, the righteousness of God, than you find in N.T. Wright's theology. There it simply is his covenant faithfulness, to use his phrase, and nothing more. The righteousness of Christ is not imputed to sinners. He derides, he laughs at the doctrine of imputation in his books. As I'll mention tomorrow night, this, of course, is now showing up in Norman Shepherd. For years, Norman Shepherd would not say whether or not he denied the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. Now he, in the past year or two, he's come out and says, yes, I deny the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. And he's making it very clear as time goes on what his beliefs really are. And as I say, it is, it is a really bad situation. Dr. Robbins, do you think it's a wrong terminology to say that baptized children of, of you know, believing parents, are those children are to be considered Christians? Do you think that's wrong terminology? I think it's very misleading terminology. Now, one can go back and read the directory of, I guess it's the directory of public worship that came out of the Westminster Assembly, and it says precisely the opposite. It says because the children of believers are already Christians, we baptize them. I think that's misleading terminology too. But it doesn't say that they become Christians by being baptized. It says that because they're already Christians, we baptize them. And I suppose what they're thinking of is that phrase, now are your children holy. That is, they're set apart. But that doesn't make them believers. And the word Christian implies that they are believers. It's not simply that they're baptized or that they're set apart as children of believers. So I think in either case, it's misleading terminology, but it's quite different from saying that they become Christians by their baptism. The DPW, the Directory of Public Worship, says they're already Christians, and that's why we baptize them. Now, in my book about uh, Douglas Wilson, I nailed him because he says in the book, they become Christians when you baptize them. Apparently he was stung by that and trotted out the DPW, which says they're already Christians, and we baptize them because of that, of course, which contradicts what his book says. But that's a problem you have to deal with in dealing with these men, is they see nothing wrong with saying contrary and contradictory things. And all you can do is point them out to people. It's either one or the other in that case. Either they become Christians upon their baptism or they're already Christians and that's why we baptize them. can't be both. Most of our churches, I think, use the term children of the covenant or something of that nature yes. for baptized children. Yes. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you.